Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. After a couple of episodes of background information with less of a focus on Harrison, I thought I'd pull us back to a more Harrison-centric episode by talking about his family. I briefly discussed his Virginia relations previously, so let's turn there for a moment. The Harrison family had been in Virginia for many generations, with William Henry Harrison's great-great-great-grandfather, Benjamin Harrison I, establishing the family in the colony in 1632. As mentioned, his father was Benjamin Harrison V, Declaration Signer, Virginia Governor, Revolutionary through and through. Unlike William, his father was evidently a rather rotund man in his later life. He supposedly joked with Elbert Jerry at the Continental Congress that, quote, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes and be with the angels. But with the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead. I have not been able to find much about his mother Elizabeth. As noted by Hendrik Borum, who researched Harrison's early life, quote, Elizabeth was a good woman, and according to one account, a pious one. But she had borne six children before Billy, William, and seems to have been physically exhausted. She was sick much of the time during Billy's youth. In his adult recollections of his childhood, William Harrison did not mention her at all. Unfortunately, that is all too common for women in early American history. We do know a bit more about Harrison's wife, Anna Sims. However, before we discuss her, we should discuss her father, Judge John Sims. Sims was a well-respected man who was also a delegate to the Continental Congress, though at a later date than Benjamin Harrison. Sims was originally born on Long Island and established himself in New Jersey. As the Revolution began, Sims had served on the State Committee of Safety as a colonel of the 3rd Regiment of the Sussex Militia, on the New Jersey Legislative Council, as a member of the New Jersey Supreme Court, and as a member of the Continental Congress. Just before the Constitution took effect, Sims moved to what was then known as the Northwest Territory with his family, establishing his new homestead in North Bend, Ohio. This westward move would put the paths of William Henry Harrison and Anna Sims closer together. William and Anna would meet in Lexington, Kentucky in spring 1795. Harrison at that time was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army stationed at Fort Washington near North Bend. Anna was born on July 25, 1775, and spent her formative years on Long Island. Due to her location and the socioeconomic status of her family, Anna ended up being more educated than most women of her time, and, though it would not come into play, more so than most first ladies up to 1841. She had attended an academy on Long Island and a private school in New York City. She was 13 when the family moved to North Bend, and unbeknownst to her at the time, she would spend the rest of her life in the Old Northwest. William and Anna's fondness for one another was not taken as good news by her father. Being a well-established man in his own right, Sims was concerned that the young lieutenant would not be able to support his daughter in a manner befitting her station. That's right. I know it's hard for us to imagine, but someone from Jersey felt that someone from Virginia aristocracy was not good enough for his daughter. As the story has gone over time, they completely ignored the father's objections and got married in secret on November 22, 1795, while her father was out of town. Their honeymoon was nothing to write home about. They spent it at the fort. As can be imagined, Judge Sims was none too pleased when he returned to find his youngest daughter married without his approval. Over time, his opinion of William would change to the point that he became the executor of his will, to William's ultimate detriment as the legal squabblings would continue for years. William and Anna would go on to have ten children, something that was rather common in the Harrison family, and indeed in many families of the time. 
A bit more unusual for the time, only one, the last child, James Finlay Harrison, would die in childhood. However, their adult longevity was not great. We'll get to that in a minute. Their first child was a daughter, Elizabeth Bassett Harrison. Not much is known about her early days from the sources that I have consulted. Unfortunately, as mentioned earlier, the story of women in the early Republic can sometimes be harder to get to as their role was seen as a subservient one to their male relations. Indeed, with Elizabeth, known to the family as Betsy, her story picks up when she marries her cousin and Anna Harrison's nephew, John Cleve Short, in 1814. As evidenced from the primary records available in the William Henry Harrison Papers and the Short Harrison Sims Family Papers in the Library of Congress, Short became an integral part of the greater family's livelihood and would often be turned to by Harrison for assistance in business dealings. Indeed, Harrison drew them close to the family upon their marriage by giving them a farm close to the Harrison's homestead in North Bend as a wedding present. Upon joining the Harrison clan, Short quickly had to face something that would become a common experience in the family, as he and Betsy lost their only child in 1816. Betsy would outlive her father by a few years, but died in 1846, a few days prior to her 50th birthday. Next was John Cleve Sims Harrison, known as Sims to his family. Sims carried on in Vincennes and established his family after William and the rest of the brood moved back on to North Bend. Sims married Clarissa Pike, a daughter of the famed explorer General Zebulon Pike, and would work at the land office at Vincennes, a patronage position received due to his father's connections. Unfortunately, due to his having cashed a check that ultimately bounced, after years of service, Sims was attacked by his father's political enemies in the incoming Jackson administration, accused of embezzlement, and removed from the position. He was not able to sort out the issue before his untimely death in 1830, and it would fall to his father to resolve the legal situation as best as possible, as well as find a means of support for his widow and their six children. The Harrison's third child was Lucy Singleton Harrison. She married David Estes, who was a judge on the Superior Court of Ohio, and the two had four children. Unfortunately, she was the first of the children who lived to adulthood to die at the age of 25, though not before giving birth to a daughter. Her next youngest brother, William Henry Harrison Jr., would only live nearly 12 years past Lucy. Harrison Jr., despite being his father's namesake, did not amount to much in his life. He did become a lawyer in Cincinnati and married Jane Finlay, but his story did not end up well. He ended up losing himself in the bottle, neglecting his legal practice, fell into debt, and died in February 1838 at the age of 35. It would be Jr.'s wife, Jane Finlay Harrison, who would travel with Harrison to Washington, D.C. upon his taking office to serve as White House hostess until the anticipated arrival of Anna Harrison. The Harrison's next child in line would prove to be the only one to live to a ripe old age and would be the most accomplished in the group. John Scott Harrison was born on October 4, 1804, and in his life would manage the family farm and serve as a congressman for two terms. He would have nine children total, three by his first wife, and the rest by his second wife. One of these children was Benjamin Harrison. That's right, the Benjamin Harrison who would become president in his own right. More on him in a bit. John Scott would die before his son took office, though, but it was an accomplishment in the Harrison family that he lived to the age of 73. In that, he even outlived his father by a few years. However, it should be noted that, for his beating the Harrison curse of untimely death, he would suffer the indignity of having his body stolen by students from the Cincinnati Medical School. Those wacky college kids and their body-stealing shenanigans. Having just mentioned Benjamin Harrison, 
William and Anna also had a son named Benjamin Harrison. If you're getting confused by all the Benjamin Harrisons, you should know that this is not unusual in early America for certain names to be used and reused often in a family. Indeed, there are many instances where couples would have a child that would die in infancy, and they would give the same name to the next child to be born. Waste not, want not, even with names. Moving on, this Benjamin Harrison would follow his father's initial career trajectory and become a doctor. Though married twice and having five children, Benjamin would go on to be rather of an adventurer and got involved in the Texas War of Independence. After being captured by the Mexicans, rumors came back to his family that he was dead. But one day, he returned to the family. Being a Harrison, though, he didn't live long after that and died, for real this time, while Harrison was campaigning for the presidency in 1840. Three years separated the births of Benjamin and his next youngest sister, Mary Sims Harrison. Mary would go on to marry a Dr. Thornton, and the two would have six children. She would not outlive her father long and died just over a year and a half after William Henry Harrison. Carter Bassett Harrison established himself as a lawyer, married Mary Ann Sutherland, and had one child before his untimely death at the age of 27 in the unfortunate stretch between the 1836 and 1840 elections when the Harrisons were averaging one child dying per year. Luckily, their next child, Anna Tuthill Harrison, would last a bit longer, though apparently there is a little confusion in the record about just how much longer. It looks like most accounts list her as dying in 1845 at the age of 31, but Doug Weed, in his book, All the President's Children, notes one account of her living until 1865 and having six children after the 1845 date. As many students of history discover, the historical record is sometimes varying, especially the further back you go, as record-keeping was not as meticulous for most of human history as it is currently. From what I've been able to find on the genealogy of the family through Ancestry.com, it seems like we was on to something, and that, despite the lack of longevity that predominated in the Harrison clan, the 1865 date is in fact correct. Anna married her second cousin on her father's side and lived for a bit at the Harrison Ancestral Estate, Berkeley, on the banks of the James River in Virginia. She writes back to her mother shortly after their wedding about customs of the Harrison clan still in Virginia, describing how, quote, We never sit down to the dinner table before half after three or four o'clock, and then the different courses and wine drinking take us until nearly night to get through. But really, I greatly prefer our plain dinners and Ohio customs. Anna would not have long to wait for her return to Ohio, as her father secured a position as substitute clerk of the court for his new son-in-law, and the Taylors moved to the Old Northwest. The Harrisons were out of the baby-making business after 1814. However, as mentioned, they would often have to take in widowed in-laws and children to help them in the midst of the many untimely deaths, and, as has been evidenced, did everything they could to keep all of their family close to North Bend. Their most well-known grandchild was only seven when his grandfather left North Bend to assume the presidency. This youngster was Benjamin Harrison, who would go on to become the 23rd president of the United States. Benjamin would grow up in Ohio and graduate from Miami University, then went on to become a lawyer. He married Caroline Scott and, surprisingly for Harrison, they only had two children. He and his family ultimately settled in Indianapolis, where he was working on building his law business when the Civil War came. Benjamin went off to war and led troops in numerous campaigns in General Sherman's Atlanta campaign before being mustered out at the rank of Brevet Brigadier General. Following the war, he started to get involved in politics, rising in the ranks of the Republican Party in Indiana, though at the ballot box, he didn't do so well, 
losing his run for governor in 1876. This wouldn't stop him, though, and after a term in the U.S. Senate, Benjamin Harrison would win the presidency in 1888. Unlike his grandfather, the second President Harrison was not known for a friendly demeanor. He was known around Washington as, quote, the icicle, and Theodore Roosevelt cursed him in a letter to Henry Cabot Lodge in 1890. William Howard Taft was a bit more generous in his assessment of Benjamin Harrison around that same time, asserting that, quote, the president, Harrison, is not popular with the members of either house. His manner of treating them is not at all fortunate, and when they have an interview with him, they generally come away mad. I think this is exceedingly unfortunate, because I am sure we have never had a man in the White House who was more conscientiously seeking to do his duty. When he lost his re-election bid and left the White House in 1893, Harrison's troubles continued. His wife Caroline died just prior to the 1892 election, but Harrison would not remain alone. He eventually married Caroline's much younger niece, Mary Dimmick, who had lived with the Harrisons in the White House after the death of her mother in 1889. His children by Caroline highly disapproved of his marriage. I'm assuming both because of the 25-year age difference and the oddity of his marrying his niece by marriage that he had watched grow up. Regardless, the Harrisons had a child and enjoyed a few happy years together before Benjamin died in 1901. The child of this controversial marriage would finally be the first Harrison woman to stand on her own and make a name for herself. By the age of 22 in 1919, Elizabeth Harrison had already earned two law degrees, as well as a bachelor's in science and a liberal arts degree, and had been admitted to the bar in Indiana and New York State before she could even vote. She would also work on educating women about economic issues, and work on the Committee for Economic Development and the Committee of United China Relief in her later years. She was a shining example that the Harrison family's commitment to public service was not merely confined to the male members of the clan. The Harrisons are one of those American families whose story covers the entirety of American history, and at times they found themselves right in the middle of the tale, for better or worse. And as with many families, they worked together, though with occasional conflict, to help one another navigate the twists and turns that the larger world might send their way. Next episode, we'll focus in even further on Harrison by examining his inauguration speech in detail. Considering that it was the longest to date ever delivered, there's plenty to talk about, including Harrison's calling Andrew Jackson out on the carpet. That's right, old Tip took on old Hickory in his inaugural. Don't believe me? Tune in next time to find out on what I'd like to call the bout to take the general out. Until then, Please feel free to send any questions or comments you may have, including future show ideas, to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, for sources for this episode, as well as supplementary material, check out the blog for the podcast at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, blueberry without the E's, dot com. We can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast. Again, all one word. If you like the podcast and would like to help spread the word, please take a moment to go to iTunes and write a review. Higher reviews mean we go up higher on the list on iTunes and can have even more folks join us on this historical exploration. Thank you so much for listening, and take care. Till next time.